Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as the military situation continues to develop at pace, we discuss Vladimir Putin's annual address to Russia and the world, threatening NATO with war if it sends troops to Ukraine. Plus, we bring on an expert to discuss the vital question of how Europe can arm itself if the United States withdraws. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 29th of February two years and five days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, and our guest, Michael Bonat, a researcher in defence technology and acquisition at RAND, the non-partisan public policy research organisation based in the United States. We also have an update from David in Ukraine. We'll be turning to Putin's big speech in a moment. But first, as ever, I start by asking Dom, for the latest military updates from Ukraine. Well, thanks, Francis. So let's start over in the east. Ukrainian forces have pushed back Russian troops from the village of Olivka. That's about 5Ks west of Avdivka. But the situation on the eastern front remains difficult. This comes from General Alexander Sursky, Ukraine's new head of the armed forces. He was speaking earlier today. Now, Olivka is uh, less than 2Ks northwest of Lastochkina, which was the most recently occupied village by Russia as they continue this move west uh, from Mavdivka. General Sersky visited the front line, described the situation throughout Donetsk Oblast as difficult, with Russian troops continuing to conduct offensives in many directions. <clears throat> it's thought, from looking around, this is me looking around elsewhere, that there's been quite dry weather in that area, which made the ground slightly harder, enabling a bit more sort of mobile movement, so vehicular movement rather than getting bogged down in the muddy mess that winter could otherwise have produced. But General Sersky said the situation was particularly tense in the villages that Ukrainian forces um, have had to withdraw from. He noted the courage, resilience and heroism of the 3rd Assault Brigade and 25th Separate Airborne Brigades, which held back, which were holding back the, the Russian offensive in Olivka with bold and decisive actions. 
He said it. I took all measures to correct the situation on the spot. He said there were, there were some. I think I got the impression that the dispositions of troops and and, and who who was where with what basically was not to his satisfaction. So he said I took all measures to correct the situation on the spot with the allocation of an additional resource of ammunition and material means as well as the necessary reserves. Now, when you deploy your reserves, I mean, you always got to have a reserve, always good at every level. Uh, but when you use them, you better have a, another reserve up your sleeve because, you know, the pot runs dry. So it sounds as if the situation is very, very difficult there in the east at the moment. Now, elsewhere, civilian casualty has been reported in Dnipropetrovsk, Donetsk, Kharkiv and Herzon oblasts. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Kharkiv or in the Kharkiv oblast. Russian forces used guided aerial bombs to hit the railway station in the village of Veliki Beluk. That killed a 48-year-old man and a six-year-old girl. The child's mother was injured in that strike. The Russian forces also carried out that airstrike around 5 p.m. local time. This comes from Kharkiv Oblast Governor Ole Sibirov. Veliki Beluk is situated in Kubiansk district. That district was attacked several times over the course of yesterday. A Russian airstrike on the city of Kupiansk earlier in the day, killed two, injured many more. The attack hit a church and a cafe, killed the pastor of the church and another uh, individual. Mikolaev, Potava, Sumi and Zaporizhia also came under attack over the course of the day, but no civilian, civilian casualties reported there. And then elsewhere, three more Russian Su-34 fighter bombers have been shot down. So planes, this comes from the, Air Force, uh, the um, Armed Forces of Ukraine in a statement earlier today. That takes to 12 Russian fighter aircraft shot down in the last 13 days, I think, or it could be 13 in 12 days. I'm kind of losing count a little bit. And that does not include the uh, A-50 airborne command and control aircraft that was shot down over the Sea of Azov a few weeks ago. I mean, it is, it is a staggering number of aircraft, fighters and, and obviously the A-50 in a fairly clunky message on Telegram, Mikhailo Olishuk, who's uh, an Air Force commander, he said today, February the 29th, is a date that occurs ev- once every four years, but is already a familiar day for Russians with the loss of another plane, minus SU-34 in the eastern direction. Thanks for the work. Victory on Earth is forged in heaven. Now, Ukraine has not spoken any more than giving the bold numbers. They've not confirmed what is behind this recent run of success in bringing down Russian aircraft. It, it might be poor drills by Russia. There was some suggestion that some of the aircraft, including even the A-50 I saw at one point, there was a suggestion it was brought down by Russian air defence. Um, I haven't seen that backed up by anything. But it might indicate that, that, that Kyiv's forces are, are using the, their air defence systems more aggressively and closer, taking more risk, pushing them closer to the front lines. Um, we've spoken before about the so-called Franken-Sams, where um, the Ukrainians are using sort of Western or mixing Western and, and old Soviet kits. So, for example, US Patriot missile batteries with Soviet radar to target aircraft. Now, I asked General Badanov, Kirill Badanov, head of Ukraine's military intelligence department last week about these so-called air ambushes, and my words, air ambushes and maritime, but specifically here about air whether or not they were taking more risk, pushing things forward, do a shoot and scoot type thing. He shot that down, no pun intended. He said, no, 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 this is, this is all just fairly standard stuff for air defenders, which I'm not so sure about. I think, I, think they are, I think what they're doing is I think they're using very clever 
intelligence preparation of the battlefield or the battle space, if you like, to work out what the patterns are that Russia is using in its aircraft, in the routes they're flying and the kind of attacks they're having to use or having to employ, especially now they are losing their A-50 airborne command and control. And I think Ukraine are working out where they're most likely to be pushing forward assets, valuable assets, taking risk, having a go. Now, the lack of the A-50 might account for the recent losses, the three today, what was it, one or two yesterday. But the other shootdowns were occurring before that A-50 went down. So, you know, there is speculation I've seen from sensible sources, but speculation, and I stress it is only speculation, that Ukraine is operating F-16s in, in their airspace. Now, I don't know. I've not seen anything on that. It's just it, it's one step away from rumour, informed rumour, if you like. But like with all these other signature pieces of equipment, as in the very sophisticated pieces of equipment that we see on the war, if we hear about their deployment at all, and there's no no real way we, we might do unless you, you're good at spotting these things, but if we hear about them at all, it will be after they have been operating for some time in the war. Uh, we're not going to hear about it, certainly in advance, probably not going to hear about it on the day. Yeah, so I think if, there's, if there are F-16s operating, we will hear in the future. Security, as we know, is not a dirty word, Blackadder, but more to watch on that one. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the coming days on that. And that's us up to date, Francis. Well, thank you very much, Dom. So turning to the political arena, a big day here too. Putin's big annual State of the Nation address to the Russian public and, of course, the wider world has just ended, laying out his objectives prior to the presidential election in the loosest possible sense of the term. Now, in contrast to previous speeches, which did not give intense attention to the war in Ukraine following a string of Russian military defeats, Today, the conflict was a major focus, unsurprising given the present military situation and the wind being in Moscow's proverbial sails. The top line is that he told NATO countries they risked nuclear war if they sent troops to Ukraine, adding that Russia must strengthen its Western military district after Finland and Sweden's admission to the Atlantic Alliance. They should eventually realise that we also have weapons that can hit targets on their territory. Everything that the West comes up with creates the real threat of a conflict with the use of atomic weapons and thus the destruction of civilization. he said. He put the cause of the war in Ukraine firmly at the West's doorstep. The West provoked the conflict in Ukraine, in the Middle East, in other regions of the world and continues to lie without any embarrassment. Russia allegedly intends to attack Europe, they say. There has been talk about the possibility of sending NATO military contingents to Ukraine. The consequences for possible interventionists will be tragic. We also have weapons that can hit targets on their territory. Don't they get that? He also reiterated the Kremlin line that the invasion was a response to Putin saying that Russia is standing up for its sovereignty and security in defending its compatriots, his term, in the Donbass. Our society has compassion, mutual support and solidarity, he said, emphasising that factory staff are working in three shifts round the clock to continue supplying troops on the front line. Support for the war effort, he claimed, remains high. Despite all the trials, all the bitterness of losses, today when our homeland is defending its sovereignty and security and protecting the lives of our fellow countrymen, the decisive role in this righteous struggle belongs to our citizens, our unity, devotion to our native country and responsibility for its fate. 
These qualities were clearly and unambiguously manifested at the very beginning of the special military operation when I was supported by the absolute majority of the Russian people. We did not start this war. As I have said many times, we will do everything to end it, to eradicate Nazism, to protect our citizens. No great surprises, though it was interesting to see him return to the NATO provocation argument as opposed to his pseudo-historical claims that Ukraine is not a state and belongs to Russia. That bit was conveniently left out. He also spoke about the robustness of the Russian economy, gloating about foreign investment and mocking the failure of sanctions. He said the West had lost in its objective to undermine Russia from within. He ended rather chillingly, I thought, by saying, we are one big family. We are together and therefore we will do as we are planning and dreaming. I believe our victories and success and in the future of Russia. Evidently, this is not a man humbled, but emboldened. The whole speech, I would argue, was yet further evidence of the dangers of the West having conceded the strategic initiative. When nations cannot agree on their red lines, this is the result. It is a tragedy that the hypothetical spectre of atomic weapons is trumping the reality of the horrors actually taking place in Ukraine today. Nukes remain Putin's trump card and he deploys them at just the right moment when Macron moots this idea of NATO troops being on the ground in extremis in Ukraine. That gives those who balk at such a notion like Olaf Scholz all the evidence that they need to equivocate when Putin makes these kind of remarks. Now, Gabrielis Landsberg, the foreign minister of Lithuania, puts it brilliantly, I think. We declare red lines for ourselves, but not for Russia. We publicly tie our own hands while leaving Putin free to pillage, rape and destroy. We create strategic transparency, not strategic ambiguity. Putin is prepared to cross borders, subvert democratic governments, ignore treaties and rewrite the past in an attempt to legitimise the invasion and annexation of his so-called lands of historic Russian interest. Putin threatens NATO with nuclear missiles, trains his armed forces for invasions, puts his economy into war mode, uses chemical weapons and orders assassinations on NATO soil. He has weaponized migrants, engaged in cyber attacks and launched disinformation campaigns. And what about our response? We have taken every opportunity to declare what we are not going to do. We have imposed red lines on ourselves and announced them openly while our adversary operates without any. We are an open book to Putin. He expects that tomorrow will bring neither Taurus nor Attackums nor even sufficient amounts of ammunition. He wakes up every day knowing there will be no strategic dilemmas that would shift his calculations, either on the battlefield or beyond. If anyone thinks Putin has regard for our gestures of restraint and alters his behaviour accordingly, they are choosing to live in an illusion. He perceives caution as weakness and an invitation to keep going. Russia retains the initiative and continues escalating. Our failure to meet this strategy with a sufficient response is the reason for the escalation, not a path to de-escalation. This is the main reason for anxiety on the eastern flank that Putin might test Article 5. Our unilateral attempts at de-escalation are not leading to a de-escalation of anything. If we do not change our approach, we might find ourselves dealing with a seismic geopolitical disaster and a global one at that. 
Therefore, it is imperative to change our approach, embrace strategic ambiguity, break taboos and include all available options in our toolkit. Such suggestions should be welcomed, not dismissed. If we think defeat can be limited to Ukraine and Putin will have no further ambitions, we have a very harsh lesson coming. But if we want Ukraine to win, we must keep everything we have on the table. Mr. Landsberg there of Lithuania. I think that says it all, frankly, if only Britain, France and Germany were putting it like that. Instead, they squabble publicly. In the past 24 hours, Germany was accused of a flagrant abuse of intelligence after revealing that British soldiers are supporting Ukrainian forces launching long-range storm shadow missiles. Scholz said on Monday that he would not deliver Taurus as it would require soldiers assisting on the ground, citing the UK and French approach with their own systems. And Scholz argued that following the UK would make Germany a participant in the war, his phrase. And those comments, which have caused outrage really here in Britain, are seen as endangering British military and diplomatic personnel on the ground, as well as feeding into Putin's narratives. So trying times indeed in the political context and in the European theatre, which leads us neatly onto our guest now. I'm very pleased to welcome onto the podcast Michael Bunat, a researcher in defence technology and acquisition at RAND, the nonpartisan public policy research organisation based in the United States. Now, for context here, listeners will recall that some time ago I put out an open question, which was, were the worst to happen and America withdraw its military support for Ukraine? On what sort of timescales would European defence manufacturers be able to fill the void, if indeed they could, given the sizable technology gap between America and many European nations? Now, Michael very kindly reached out with one of the most comprehensive answers I received. So rather than sharing what he wrote, I thought instead it would make sense to invite him on. So, Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Let's start with that top line question could Europe feasibly fill the gap if America were to withdraw? And if so, what sort of timescale are we talking about and what weapons specifically? So it, it definitely could. The question is how long and by what category of weapon. So we're already seeing that from the standpoint of artillery that European firms are ramping up. I'll reference off and on that Estonian document that Dom repeatedly talks about. But in general, we're seeing it a Rheinmetall, NAMO, some of the others, they're going to be able to get up towards the 100,000 shells this year if they all scrimp together. That's not the two to 300,000 that Ukraine is asking for. But, you know, there's also the amount that Ukraine domestically produces. One thing is I'm going to broaden this sphere a little bit, Francis, that if the EU is willing to purchase internationally, South Korea and other countries do have additional capacity that can be drawn on in the interim. Normally, a rule is you can't really more than double or triple a year of your production of ammunition. By the end of 2025, Europe can probably do it handily. In the meantime, for 2024, there's probably going to have to be that internal discussion to purchase from external sources. For some of the, the short-range air defenses, that's probably going to be the largest gap. Europe only really has three SAM systems, the Aster, the CAM, and the Iris-T. Germany has already ramped up production significantly, although as the Estonian document sites, it's a minimum of 400 per month. Iris T production will reach 600 per year this year, and that's the highest production. So air defense is really the critical one where Ukraine's going to have to make some very serious choices and prioritization. If the U.S. does not provide aid, even with the U.S. providing aid, the demand cited in the Estonian document, which 
only refers to cruise missile defense would utilize all NATO production, including the U.S. So there's significant ramp up that's going to be necessary in the air defense. In a little bit, we can talk about some ways to kind of mitigate that, which there are a lot of options. But those are two large ones. But actually, the biggest gap for Europe, you know, tracked armor, tanks, that, that will take a year or two to ramp up. But the biggest gap is Europe lacks long-range strike. While there's some tourist pr- production annually, there's a small amount of scalp and storm shadow. Those are measured in dozens, not hundreds or thousands. Additionally, the Gimler's rocket that the U.S. produces for the that's been famous with HIMARS, there's no European equivalent. So if there's no pr- way of procuring those missiles for HIMARS, that's going to be a significant gap that Ukraine is going to need to, to fill. There are some, and, and, and Europe will have to probably request license production for that. Um, this leads it to where, once again, external sources can support, once again, South Korea, but also Pakistan and India are options. So there's going to have to be a lot of discussion within the European members at what point they share. Thank you, Michael. This is really, really interesting. And if I may just summarize the email that you sent to me on sort of breaking down the time scale here, you said that capable this year would be possible if America withdrew sort of tube artillery, light infantry weapons and wheeled vehicles, possibly capable, depending on, of course, the decisions that are made now, heavy infantry weapons, drones, short range air defense, body armor, medical equipment. And then we're looking at 2026 by your calculations when we start to see, as you were just describing there, long-range air defences, tracked armour, rocket artillery, long-range strike. I mean, 2026 is a long, long way away indeed. And I think it speaks to the huge dilemma that is posed to Europe if America were to withdraw. In your opinion... Do you think, based on this, that enough is being done? There is enough sense of urgency. And I know that's a political question, but in your technological (laughs) expertise opinion, is enough being done? A lot more checks need to be written, and they need to be written very quickly. That's my apolitical statement on this. But no, there needs to be a much larger investment very soon. I think the investment suggested by Estonia, the 0.25% of GDP is probably light, and it's probably not long enough. There's going to have to probably be instead of a to get some of these large productions, it's going to have to be a, above that for five, six, seven years to really be able to get the facilities online. It's perfectly doable. Europe does have the capacity. It's the, the, there's no European wide defense production act that the U.S. can call on. But there's definitely it's not too late. It's just it takes a lot of investments very quickly and very soon. Thank you. Now, Dom, I know you'll be champing at the bit to ask some questions. So over to you. I have a few, if I may, and if the voice holds out. And Michael, delighted to to chat to you at last. I'm so sorry I was doing the sort of dance of the seven veils last September when we were in the US, kept promising you lunch and then letting you down at the last minute. So delighted we can chat to you now. When we were in uh, the US last year, I went up to the Picatinny Arsenal in New Jersey when I chatted to General John Ryan and, and the guys up there about their production of artillery. And they were saying they were ramping up to aim to be able to produce 86,000 155mm shells by summer this year. Since then, of course, we've had the whole toing and froing in Congress with the bill. Can you just talk us through what activity you think might have been happening in the intervening months? Because in, in the UK, and I think throughout the EU for competition rules and all that kind of jazz, um, they wouldn't be able to 
they wouldn't be able to take it at risk, I suppose. BAE Systems and all the rest of it could produce weapons at their own cost, but they wouldn't do anything without an order. What's the system in the US? Are they able to to build up towards that 86,000 a month in advance of any money and any orders? Or is there any kind of some kind of legislative reason why they'd be pretty prohibited from doing that? Yeah, so this is where you know you get to the, the differences between European and US industrial bases. That production facility is US-owned contractor operated. But there are investment monies every year that are set aside for industrial-based development that can be used where necessary. So because it's a you know a government-owned entity for some of the smaller arms and the artillery, that gives a lot of flexibility for the Army to push some of those ramping up activities where, whether it's BAE or Lockheed Martin or any of the other suppliers, they can take at risk, but they don't have that. It's an interesting discussion that we've had of, on the one hand, that government contractor model allows ramping up only when there's money, where the actual contractor model that we see in BAE and elsewhere they can take risk. And we've seen that a little bit with Rheinmetall and Saab and others with you producing in Ukraine, where they have taken some of those risks. But the, the U.S. hits the advantage that the U.S. owns the facility and can start with the supply chain very quickly. Right. So, you, so you're, you'd be fairly confident then that they are on their way to 86,000 shells a month? Can we take it from that? It, it's from, from everything I've heard, the, the contracts down the line were already purchased. Wow. There's... You know, when you buy the, you know, when you when you set these, it's not just that the factory and the um, staff there are ramping up. There's the materials, and that's a very long supply chain going back deep. And as was highlighted even back then, many of those contracts are already being signed for that ramp up, and that's a globally sourced supply chain. You know, when someone says eighty six thousand, that's not that's going to be just then. Most of those checks were written a year, eighteen months in advance to get to that point. Now. Continuation of that at that level is a different story, but getting to those sort of levels, that that process is kind of already on a glide path. Yeah, I'm just trying to work out if and when the block in Congress is lifted, if weapons flow immediately or, you know, because if these things, if they've already been paid for, then why can't the US ship them this afternoon? Or if the block in Congress is saying, no, no, that's the, that's the money that will then start the process of building these things. That will take some time. But it sounds, it, it, you're suggesting that the um, that these are already baked in, these contracts are already done, the money's been a- attributed. So they must have been producing weapons for contracts that have already been signed. So why has there been, why is there this, this ammunition shortage, the starvation of 155 mil in particular? So I will say, I can't speak to all those inner workings. That being said, this is a multi-part issue too, because there's continuing resolutions, which I'm quite familiar with, where when a budget's not passed, the budget is kind of can be in a holding pattern in the US where there's limits to the fungibility. So how things are moved. There's other aspects beyond just the allocation of purchasing things for Ukraine. There's the drawdown authority. And then there's the money to move things from the drawdown authority, which is our transportation command. So there's there's multiple pools of money that are involved in this process. I can't speak to the timing when or why some are being chosen to be shipped or not. That's more in the political sphere than I normally delve. Fair enough. Although it does, I'm slightly encouraged, or I am encouraged by your answer there, because it sounds as if the, the things will have been produced over the last few months, and therefore when the block is lifted, hopefully it should be fairly swift to get things going. Another question, if I may, what's your analysis of these, as I've described, these air ambushes? I've portrayed this idea of 
Ukraine doing some fairly clever Mazins and other sort of intelligence preparation and then pushing signature equipment forward, taking risk, shoot and scoot, that kind of thing. Am I madly doing sort of fantasy fleets there or what do you think is going on? So the good news is I actually do more combat modeling than I do industrial base, more because of what's paid for vice's vice interest. I will say this. It's been widely broadcast that Ukraine is running short on air defense missiles. That's been, you know, the bell's been ringing on that since November. And a question that I think you have to ask here is Russia believing that and taking more risk? And has Ukraine exaggerated that a little bit to take advantage? So there's that strategic question of did Russia take more risk and it didn't work out? I will say these are losses that I would expect much more if you were engaged in actively supporting a battle. They might, uh, Ukraine, you know, they might be taking more risk or they might not. But there are different ranges of these systems. Some are still flowing into Ukraine. And where they are matters too. The Russia has some number of glide munitions, but some number of close-in munitions. So I think a question, how much of this is Ukraine doing something different versus Russia taking a lot more risk is something that we won't have as much visibility into until someone such as the UK MOD publishes some more stats on sortie rates. Usually when I make the request in a couple of weeks, UKMOD on their Twitter post answer. So I'm hoping we get that again, Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, let's try. Yeah. Just finally for me, General Zaluzny, in his essay of a couple of months ago, he was saying that the incremental advance and counter against the enemy in all domains is not going to win the war for Ukraine. He was saying that Ukraine needs to make a technological leap. He didn't say drones or anything but he didn't he didn't put any more detail on it but he was saying they need to they need to do something bold take a bit of risk innovate get ahead of this sort of traditional slog what do you think might be possible looking at the battlefield as it is now and the orbat that russia's laid down and their their method of working albeit they have they have transformed slightly i'd guess what do you think this kind of technological leap might be that general zeluzny was either hinting at or reaching for so there, there's leaps that existed that we leapt backwards so the plan in the 90s and the, or the 80s and the 90s was the U.S. made you know modern generation cluster munitions for anti-tank. So the SFDs and SFMs, or those allowed a single munition to, to disable 40 tanks at once. The U.S. stopped producing those a couple of decades ago, and Russia couldn't afford to produce those. So that's something where you can, it was designed to, you know, a bomber could stop a couple battalions easily. And so there, there definitely are those options there, those special anti-tank cluster munitions that are actually pretty small that can be delivered by drones. That's definitely something that's a possible solution that's using 20-year-old technology. Not, but it hasn't been on the battlefield yet. Uh, I think Estonia mentioning the Gripen fighters with the Meteor missiles would be one of those because that would give legs to do some longer, longer air cover which I think would greatly um, reduce the pressure on ground forces and on the SAM supplies. F-16s are great. They're designed for one symphony, as you like to say, Dom. The Gripen's designed to operate in a quartet against Russia. And I think the Gripen can provide an asymmetric advantage. The last one is, I'm glad Jen Stoltenberg mentioned this in the past week, but the serious discussion on what and when to strike in Russia. I think... That debate needs to start happening now. We know, I'm actually going to, I was preparing a, a post earlier, but we do know today, or we do know that what the effect on air bases can be or logistics. And so most, you just, you can pull up the stats from Russian airfields. Most are only 
a few hundred kilometers of the Ukrainian border, and most don't need to be defended by air defense. So pulling air defenses away from the front with a few attacks on air bases, if aircraft have to move further back, that can cut sortie rates 20, 30, 40%, and possibly for days at a time. So those are kind of three areas, I think. It's the advanced anti-vehicle, anti-armor cluster munitions, um, possibly Gripen fighters, and then finally selected strikes into Russia. Okay, hang on, bear with me. Symphony and Quartet. Right, I'm going to nick that. I'm going to have that. Thank you very much. Cheers, Michael. Thank you. Uh, Just finally for me, um, the A-50s, the Airborne Command and Control aircraft that that Russia, we think, have about 11, so about seven operational, given serviceability of the aircraft, number of crews, so on and so forth. They've lost two, no of, in recent months. So we're looking at about half dozen, five, six-ish. What do you think the effect would be? If, if they are reduced even further? Or wh- when does it fall? When does the, the graph, I can't even think what would be on the X and Y axis, but when the graph goes, it sort of falls off a cliff. When does it become unworkable? That's the first half of the first half of the question. And then secondly, because I promised Francis only had one more, what are you looking at over the next few months? We're not expecting major moves on the battlefield, although it's concerning what's happening in the East. But if the land campaign is relatively fixed, what are you looking at over the next few months? Cheers, Michael. All right. Um- So with special mission aircraft like the A-50, the general assumption is normally four makes one, as we say, orbit. And given the front line for Ukraine, where the fighting is, you need two orbits to maintain continuous radar coverage from the air. What radar coverage from the air means is it prevents a shadow. So normally, because the Earth is curved, radar can't see below the horizon. So that means if fighters stay low, they can get close to the front and drop munitions. However, the reason you have an elevated radar, and there are some great cartoons from the 50s and 60s that the U.S. put out to explain this. If you take those out, you can fly aircraft at low altitude and get very close to the front line and either deploy munitions or shoot up and hit other fighters, etc. So once that critical mass drops where you're below a persistent orbit, and in this case, they if you're down to five, that you cannot run persistent orbits in two locations. Now you can operate aircraft in low altitude mode, including helicopters. So that gives you a lot more freedom of maneuver. And it, th- does that mean the whole thing falls apart? No. But if you have F-16s or Gripens or whatever, it, it or just more of the helicopters, it provides that much more freedom for Ukraine to move, which given the positional nature of this conflict is greatly needed. I think we're, I think the next couple of months are going to be really hard. It does seem that Russia is trying to capitalize as much as possible on Ukraine having some shortages. That being said, what we've seen is you know there was the whole issue of getting ships out of Ukraine that was as much an insurance issue as anything. Ukraine hitting the Russian fleet has partially enabled that because the threat of blockade is diminishing as well as the threat of, or the ability to resupply Crimea. So as these amphibious ships are getting blown up, once the Kerch Bridge is taken down, Crimea becomes an island. And so I think that preparation of the battle space to isolate Crimea is probably what, what, I, you know, what we've seen a continuing trend for the past six months that Ukraine is doing. So you factor in preparation of the air by loss of these A-50 aircraft and preparation of the sea. 
a steady campaign in that for the rest of the year really can set the stage for a strong Ukraine in 2025. Well, thank you, Michael, for those answers. I've got a couple more, if I may. This is just such a fascinating and important subject. It's great to have you on this. Firstly, you were just talking about the Kerch Bridge there. I mean, what is necessary to drop that bridge? We've had a lot of speculation about the Taurus missiles. It doesn't seem that Germany are going to give Ukraine those. Is there something else that could do the job? Historically, unitary weapons do a very poor job at taking out bridges. What works very well are basically anti-runway penetrators. They just kind of fall in and blow up because it's very hard to get a direct strike even from the side on the pillars of a bridge. You want to take out the pillars so those can't be rebuilt. There are some attacking variants that might be able to do the job if they're still in inventory. Some of the older ones back that were designed to take out runways might be possible. I don't, once again, I'm not privy to exactly which which ATACMs are shipped, but that's definitely a strong option. Maybe a Taurus missile, but that's not really what they're just, they're not made to do that. There are very few munitions designed to take out bridges. Going back to World War II, the amount of bombers that were spent to take out bridges was an ungodly number of, by ratio. But there are options, but I think it's going to have to be some sort of rocket artillery. Interesting. And those timescales that you spoke about earlier on, pretty pessimistic on some of the weaponries. Are those based on our current understandings of Europe's capability or is much more possible if Europe were to suddenly wake up from its stupor? So the answer is yes. Although that being said, that t- those timelines have been pretty consistent for over 100 years. Going back to World War II, it took about three years to ramp up something new when things were much simpler. That being said, you look at you know the sensors today. So one problem you have is to get those timelines, you have to wrestle all the intermediate suppliers away from where they can make more money. When you look at a seeker for a missile, the imaging infrared or the millimeter wave, those are used in the automotive industry very heavily for self-driving vehicles. If you're a supplier of those, you have an option of a bunch of very small ones that you're literally selling millions to Volkswagen, Mercedes, etc., or a few thousand very high-end ones. There's a certain point where the military just can't throw enough money to pull some of that interest away, where there might need to be some political intervention. The U.S. has the Defense Production Act, which we could use, but there's also a question of looking at lower down the line sort of other missiles that might not be as good, but you can get in the volumes and trade-offs. There's been some buzz about Vampire as one of those that takes some sensors like that. So there's definitely within the supply chain, you can accelerate it if you pull a lot of more sticks than carrots to those large industrial partners. But I do think the other half of this is looking at, okay, what can you pull faster that can kind of do the job done even if it's not good? But it's probably going to take a lot of sticks to make it happen. It can happen much faster, Francis. It's just a matter of how the will to push. Yeah, I thought you might say that. And just one final question from me before I ask you whether you've got any other thoughts and subjects we haven't talked about. And that is about Russia's industrial base. We're talking about the Western one at the moment. What's your assessment of that? Is it as strong and robust as it appears to many or is there more going on? So I've written about this in a few other articles and there's a fair number of us on Twitter that that behind the scenes talk about this too. What I'll say is, the Russian war machine is ramping up and underperforming what it should. 
That being said, they started two and a half years ago and compounding interest takes effect. They're still vulnerable to Western sanctions. They're getting the first six months to a year were pretty rough. They weren't getting the tooling. They weren't getting some of the sensors. But as we've seen, they're pretty good about getting transshipments through the Central Asian states. So there are definitely a pressure point still to reduce their ramp up. But they look like they're doubling production every year. And to counter that, it's going to take sadly blocking a lot of Western firms from that are kind of getting around sanctions by shipping to Kyrgyzstan and others. There's some great work, Robin Brooks and others have really highlighted those sort of transshipments. But that's something that from a sanction perspective, enforcing sanctions heavily and picking one or two states that are helping sanctions be skirted and making examples of those countries and firms could probably do a lot to greatly reduce Russia's industrial throughput. They're very dependent on the rest of the world for many points of equipment. That's fascinating. Well, Michael, I think to steal Dom's phrase, you certainly know your onions. Are there anything else, any other subjects that we haven't talked about here? And I will give you a final thought as well. But is there anything that we haven't talked about or the journalism world isn't talking about that you think our attention should be on? I think that the most important thing we have to be, there's two parts. One of them is we have to be way more proactive on sanctions that just write, you know, it's it's the enforcement not as much as the writing of sanctions is a big part of it. And then the second part is Ukraine, there are a lot of stipulations put on these systems. And I think, especially if there's not going to be the volumes necessary, the way that that the West wants the weapons to be used, there has to be a very serious discussion about letting Ukraine use their limited resources in the most efficient way and that might be such as striking into Russia, et cetera, that makes people uncomfortable. I think a lot of those uncomfortable questions over letting Ukraine take more drastic measures need to start happening. And right now they aren't. Well, thank you. Subject, I think, that we'll be returning to. It does feel now that on the current trajectory, something big has to change if, as the West has said, it cannot afford to see defeats for Ukraine in the next few months to a year. Michael, that's fascinating. Thank you. Before we turn to our final thoughts, an update from David and our producer, Adley, who is still in Ukraine. Hi, everyone. David here. Obviously, Francis of Dom have gone back to the UK and we're here. They're doing some wonderful work hosting the podcast. Myself and our producer, Adley, have stayed in Ukraine for an extra week to follow up and explore a number of other stories that we're going to be releasing over the next few weeks for you. Just to paint you a picture of where we are, we're currently on a bus heading down the Jotimir Highway towards the city of Rivnia for a very important interview and a very difficult interview that I won't give too much away about, but you'll hear it in the, in the coming weeks and we'll be there overnight and in the morning. This is the um, highway down which the Russian forces in the opening stages of the full-scale invasion charge with their armoured brigades, armoured sort of battle groups to, to grab the capital. The first time I came down here was nearly two years ago um, with Dom Nichols on our way into Kiev. We saw the sort of ghostly remnants of the destruction left by the Russian army. And coming out now, obviously, you know, we're two years on, so most of it's been repaired. But there's still a few things which haven't been, which stands as sort of twisted testament to the brutality and the violence of those early days. One thing I have noticed which has changed is when I first came in, all of the footbridges were broken and they've been smashed in the middle by a missile or a shell and they look so far as if they've all been repaired. Anyway, we're on the highway to Rivnia, we're going through another village. 
and the soon will be into the sort of deep Ukrainian countryside. That'll be very beautiful to see with the sun setting. So over the last few days, on Monday, we headed out of Kiev to interview a brigade commander in the Ukrainian armed forces. He spoke a lot about how the Ukrainians are adapting what they learn from their NATO trainers and changing it for the battlefield as it is. I mean, there was a lot of talk of how British, German, other trainers don't understand the reality of the war, the pitched war, the artillery war, the drone war that the Ukrainians are fighting. And he made a very interesting point about how the sort of in the different mentalities of this war, you have the Soviet, post-Soviet mentality, which dominates the Russian army, which is to a large extent something we've discussed before, which is you fling a load of men and armor and artillery and bombs at a target and eventually you break it and you go in and occupy it. And he said, you know, well, the difficulty with that is we don't have the ammunition of the kit. We don't have the men and we you know, care about our men more than we think the Russians do. And the second doctrine that they've been taught and they're exploring is the NATO doctrine. And he said, look, that's really good. You've got air support. It's highly mobile. You've got loads of really, really great kit. And again, the problem with that is they don't have loads of really great kit. They, they just don't. And the nature of the war they're fighting means that they're having to not sort of take either of these options. Doctrine one, the sort of post-Soviet Soviet doctrine. Doctrine two, the NATO doctrine. So I said, you know, well, what's the third way? What's the Ukrainian way? And he talks a lot about that, about how they're taking the best lessons from what they've learned from NATO and what they've learned from the Soviets. And they're creating something new in warfare and how they are now teaching other armies how to fight especially you know, the Brits that kind of thing but we spoke a lot about the limitations of Western aid we spoke a lot about the limitations of Western training and what they need to do to fix that to help the Ukrainians and he was he was a really interesting guy in his office had sword on the side on the wall that is several weapons that he'd taken as trophies from the Russians so I think I think you'll find that interview absolutely fascinating so on Tuesday morning we went to Naboo a planet on the far side of the galaxy and we were welcomed by the Gunguns, and oh no, my producers just just shot a look at me because I've been making that joke for several days now. Sorry, Adley. We went to, we went to Naboo, not a planet, the government agency in Ukraine that fights anti-corruption. So it's had a lot of Western training and support from the FBI, from the NCA in Britain, the National Crime Agency, and they gave us a tour. They sort of showed us around what they do. We met their detectives, we met their analysts. We saw their crime labs where they sift through digital records, phone records, email records, receipts. You know, they struck us, I think, uh, as being really, really steely-eyed. I mean, I tried to ask a couple of questions where I said, you know, I asked the director, are the oligarchs scared of you? And he just looked me in the eye and laughed. And another question I asked the deputy director, I said something like, you know, should the bad guys be scared of you? You know, what, what do they make of your, your work? And she said, well... There's a sort of common rumor about Naboo that we have you know, 80,000 employees uh, to come after everybody. We don't. But I don't correct them when people say that. I don't correct people. I want them, I want them to be scared, you know. And then we still, some, we still have some follow-up questions for them, really, that um, we'd quite like to put to them before we publish anything. And it's, it's stuff like, you know, they are the anti-corruption agency and simple, who watches the watchers? On uh, Wednesday, we went to a secure location somewhere in Kiev where groups of researchers look at missiles that have been shot down or forced to land or captured in, in other ways by the Ukrainian armed forces they're brought to this lab and examined and I won't tell you too much but you know we saw the inside of a, of a, of a new Shahid drone's brain and you know it's an astonishing place this sort of courtyard uh, of scrap but all the scrap is is weapons and missiles and we, we really think we're really sorry Dom we think you'd have found it absolutely you know if you think you'd have really found it interesting uh, so sorry you weren't there mate one of the most interesting things they showed us was the cylindrical casing of a North Korean missile. Now, this is something we've known for a few weeks. 
this is it, right? These are the guys who found it, who proved it, and said, yeah, like, there's nowhere else this is going to come from. That's the North Korean missile. That's the first time we've seen that in this war. Finally, this afternoon, we went to see a copsar, a traditional Ukrainian musician who plays the Bandura. He gave us a lyrical explanation of what a copsar is, what it means for Ukrainian culture. You know, we know he plays at funerals for soldiers, and he teared up and he played us some of the music and he spoke about what his role in Ukrainian society is uh, and this sort of renaissance of Ukrainian culture. Right now, as we've said, we're on the Josimir Highway uh, heading towards Rivni for this incredibly sad interview tomorrow morning and then we'll be back to Kiev. Anyway, hope you're all well. Thank you so much for listening and uh, back to you, Francis and Don. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now to our final thoughts. Dom, can I go to you first before I go to Michael and then read a special one from a listener? Yeah, sure. Um, big ideas you're after. Okay, here's one coming. And this is in the wake of Gabrielas Landsberg, Foreign Minister of Lithuania's comments about strategic ambiguity and the need to regain the strategic initiative. He said, Mr. Landsberg said, we declare red lines for ourselves, but not for Russia. Well, how about this for a line? Putin loves historical reappraisal. He'll reach back into certain chapters of the history books to claim that a bit of land used to belong to somebody who once knew someone and sold it to whatever, blah. Look at Lviv, city in the west of Ukraine, the area around it. Go back through history, and there were times when Lviv and the area around it belongs to Hungary and Austria and Poland. So why not give it back? Why doesn't Ukraine sell a huge bubble around Lviv back to Poland for a certain time that the EU or the UN, if you could get it through, probably not, but the EU, or just the international community accepted, would be handed back in five years. But that then became part of Poland. And you say that's going to happen on June the 1st, 2024. And then you say to the world, Mr Putin, January the 1st, 2025, take a line from Moldova and go north, all that portion of Ukraine. We're going to sell that to Poland as well. And then January the 1st, 2026, everything up to the west of the Dnipro River. We're going to sell that to Poland. It's going to be part of NATO. We can put our troops there if we want to. You know, 
What about something like that? Okay, I know that's a little bit provocative, and listening to myself say it is something. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe not. But why not? I look to our fantastic listeners, to the international lawyers and the states, the the folk that are listening in, and the state departments and what have you. Tell me why you couldn't cede portions of your territory for a, de- a determined time period to another country to allow it to become part of Poland for a little while, and then uh, let's see where we go from there. Anyway, maybe a little bit of pie in the sky, but why not? Let's just have that little flight of fancy. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Tom. And I remember you saying on the train back from Kiev that we need to see, to, to paraphrase Zeluzhny, not a technological leap, because it seems that's not going to be possible in the short term, certainly not based on the conversation we've had with Michael today, but a policy leap. And I think you're right. There does need to be some serious questions asked. I mean, that's obviously a, a very, very bold proposal indeed, but maybe it's time to start thinking outside the box because on current trajectories, things are looking much more pessimistic than many thought. So um, I think it's a very worthy conversation for us to be having. And and it's certainly something that I'm sure Ukraine would also be open to having conversations about, not necessarily in terms of ceding territory, but in terms of thinking more boldly about proposals being put forward by the West that might help it out in its hour of need, to put it mildly. Uh, Michael, can I go to you next? What are your final thoughts? I say, Don, the Louisiana Purchase and the Virgin Islands came to the U.S. that way, so I don't entirely complain about that one as an American. What I will say is I want to make it very clear. Ukraine can still win this. We are still in a very early part of this war, as sad as, you know, as that statement is. But it's very winnable for Ukraine, and there's a lot that can go into this. And from an investment perspective, for one-tenth of one year's U.S. defense budget, 20 years of Russian ground procurement, and 10 years of Russian air procurement has been destroyed. And I think that kind of gets lost in all of this, that for that little of investment has taken a threat off the table for NATO for five to 10 years. And doing that again and again can make sure that this is a problem that's gone for a very long time. And we need to keep on framing it and how cheap this actually is relative to the trillions of dollars that would be spent if there is an all-out war. That if Russia wins and has an industrial base with nothing to do and decides to go after others. The, it's, now is a great time to get a high return on investment. And we have to start thinking where can we make the political and military investments now to protect our future. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Really fascinating hearing your reflections on this. We'll have to have you back on as these conversations continue in the European context. They're certainly fraught at the moment. I just want to end today by saying we receive many messages from listeners around the world every day, and it remains an endless source of frustration that we can't reply to them all. We are only a small team, but we do, as promised, read every single one. As such, as soon as we received this one from Australia, we wanted to make a special effort to reply on air as it moved us all very deeply. Before I read the message, I wrote to Olga yesterday and I have her permission to share with you what she wrote to us. Dear Ukraine, the latest team, I'm avidly listening to your podcast from my hospital bed. I have terminal cancer and will leave this mortal coil fairly soon. I've made my peace with that. I'm not sharing this for sympathy, but instead for inspiration. Listening to the podcast from the Telegraph team has brought much more meaning to my world than I could have imagined. 
and I'm sure that when I pass through the material veils, I will continue to listen. If it's true that one may have a say in their next incarnation, I will have my hand up for something positively Ukrainian. Slava Ukraini. Best regards, Olga. Well, Olga, on behalf of the entire team, thank you for taking the time to write such a beautiful note. We dedicate the end of today's episode to you with a recording from Ukraine of a performance by the award-winning Ukrainian musician and now soldier, Taras Kompanyshenko. На небо та я думку гадаю, чому я не сокив, чому не літаю, чому мені, Боже, ти крилець не дав, я б землю покинув. І в небо злітав, чому мені, Боже, ти крилець не дав, я б землю покинув і в небо злітав, далеко за хмари. Подальше от світу шукать собі долі на горе привіту і ласки у сонця у зірок просить і в світі їх ясні все горе втопи. Малку здаюся нелюбий, я наймиту неї, хлопцюга приблудний, чужий я у долі, чужий для людей, хіба ж хто кохає нерідних дітей. Чужий я у долі, чужий для людей, хіба ж хто кохає нерідних дітей? Кохаюся зликом, привіту не знаю, і гірко, і тяжко, сік коротаю, і в горі спізнав я, що тільки. Одна далеке є небо, моя сторона.
на світі гірко, як стане ще гірше, я очі на небо, мені веселіше, і враз позабуду, що я сирота, і думка далеко, високо літа. І враз позабуду, що я сирота, і думка далеко, високо літа. Якби мені крилля, орлячі ті крилля, я б землю покинув, і на новосілля орлом всі закрилим у хмари полінуву і в хмарах навіки, навіки втону. Дивлюся на небо, та я думку гадаю, Чому я не сокіл, чому не літаю, Чому мені, Боже, ти крилець не дай? Я б землю покину, і в небо злітає.